Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk of the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Alexandra Diaz. Uh, she's author of Santiago's Road Home, which came out earlier this year, and we're going to be talking about the middle-grade novel The Girl with the Silver Eyes. Uh, this was written by Willow Davis Roberts in 1980, but it was a brand new book to me. But first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. Uh, this one today is called I Am a Canvas, and it was written by Vanessa Brantley Newton. I found it in her poetry book, Just Like Me. I am a canvas being painted on by the words of my family, friends, and community. Sometimes the words are painted with blacks and grays that leave me feeling confused. Other times the palette is filled with blues that make me want to scream and holler in a bluesy kind of way. I am not feeling it today. And then there are days when pinks and purples flow over my canvas like the sky and give me hope for a different tomorrow. And then there are the paints that I get to choose, greens, yellows, oranges, and blues. My guest today is Alexandra Diaz, award-winning author of Good Girls Don't Lie, The Only Road Home, and The Crossroads. Her latest book is Santiago's Road Home, which came out in May this year. You can find her website at alexandradiaz.com. Thank you for joining me today, Alexandra. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jody, for having me. And just want to clarify that the website is alexandra-diaz.com. Uh, oh. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, I do have it written here. But <laughs> I, did, I just didn't say the hyphen, but it is part of that, definitely. Uh, so I mentioned that uh, your latest book is uh, Santiago's Road Home. Can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Yes, definitely. So it's a modern day immigration novel uh, in the same vein as The Only Road and The Crossroads. It is a companion novel to these two. It is not a sequel. It tells the story of Santiago, who is a Mexican boy coming from an abusive family. And he decides that instead of returning to his grandmother's house, who is very abusive woman, He's going to take the the bus fare money and start his new life. He doesn't really know what that new life is going to be, but it ends up that he meets a young mother and her daughter, and they're heading over to El Otro Lado, the other side, as uh, the United States is colloquially called. He starts traveling with them and... They come across a lot of difficulties, of course, in the crossing, and he eventually ends up in an immigration detention center. So, again, it's very topical, very uh, realistic in terms of things that are happening right now with people seeking asylum and being separated from, from their family members or people that they love and care about. So he finds himself in this immigration uh, detention facility all by himself, not knowing what's going to happen or what his future holds. There's definitely some incidences of him being institutionalized and getting familiar and comfortable with that, that detention center, even as awful as it is. 
you know, it's it's security. And that's something that he has never had before in his life. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is about. <laughs> now, I understand with your other books, The Only Road Home, which, I, which I've had a chance to read. It's a trip book, very wrenching to read, I have to say. Uh, but that's that's understandable. And Thank The you. Crossroads, which I haven't had a chance to read uh, yet. But I understand that there was, you know, certainly a lot of research that went into both those books. And I imagine this one as well. Yes, definitely. I was not able to attend any um, any of these centers. They are very difficult for people to gain access. However, I did do a lot of research. I read different people's accounts of what went on there. And I also had a immigration lawyer read through it and give me some advice on, okay, am I saying anything that is accurate or inaccurate? And her response was basically that as bad as I had made it sound in this center, it was actually considerably worse than, than what I had written. So that's the other aspect of when you are a writer, especially a writer for children, there are some things that you have to not necessarily shelter, but you certainly have to turn down the extremes that that might be happening in order to make it suitable for for the the young audience. Uh, but yeah, so I, I did a lot of research and then I have to admit, I also used a bit of my imagination and put together uh, a fictional center that is based on real facts, both prison, like standard prisons and immigration uh, centers. So was there anything in your research that uh, surprised you that you thought uh, as, as much even I know Mia might have known said, well, that's struck me as something I did not realize. One thing was the, the magnitude on, on how quickly things change. Uh, for instance, I heard one immigration lawyer discuss that children were required to have schooling um, every every day for a couple hours. So I wrote that into my story, and then I then found out that no, I mean schooling is considered a luxury, and it's a luxury that um, that has been omitted. So that was one thing that had to change in the terms of writing the book. But what really, really surprised me, and it still completely floors me, is that they estimate that the cost of keeping a child in these centers is over $700 per child per day. And I, I just do not know where that money goes because the the conditions in which they're kept i mean it's a it's usually a very large room or you know there's also been reports of them being kind of divided in like cage like substances they sleep on the floor they have metallic space blankets which let me tell you are not very cozy in the least and given food that is often moldy or unrecognized as as anything edible so you know you look at the extremes that they are being forced to live in and yet the reports are coming in that there is not enough money to give them 
a better life and that it costs over $700 per child per day to keep them there. I, I, I mean, that's, that's just so unheard of. I mean, how many people can, like, I just think of myself and I mean, there have definitely been months where I have earned $700 uh, a month and I've still been able to feed myself and have shelter and a roof over my head. So I just, it just bothers me so much that they say that's how much money it costs. And, you know, you know, the reality is just keeping some fat cat, you know, rich and happy. And meanwhile, these children, these people are suffering. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I it just enrages me so much. I don't really know how else to, to explain it and still keep this a, a PG uh, show. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've explained it very well. What would you like to, uh, for the readers who, who, who read this book and, and the uh, companion books uh, to get out of it, to just, just to give them a better picture, to do like a call to action or get, just get them to start thinking and asking questions about these, you know, very relevant and very much ongoing uh, things. Yeah, very much so. So I've always said that I've written my books to be both a window and a mirror. So I want it to be accessible for kids who have no idea that this is going on. I want them to be aware, as you said, to ask questions, to learn more about what's happening in the world around them, and especially in today's world. So children often will read about bad things that have happened in the past, for example, the Holocaust. Um, and that was, yes, a horrible tragedy. And yet a lot of children don't realize that similar things are still happening in today's world. So when they're learning things, they're sometimes learning it with a filter and thinking, okay, well that happened, you know, ages ago, you know, it's in the past. It doesn't really affect me. It doesn't really affect the people I'm around, but yes, that's the thing that these things are affecting the, um, you know, the, the world right now. And people could very well have had these experiences that are in their, uh, place of worship in their school, in their sports teams, uh, as members of their communities. So that's definitely one aspect of it. And then the other, yes, I want to provide a, a book where children who have had these experiences or whose immediate family have had these experiences can have something to relate to and know uh, that they are not alone, that there are others who have experienced these things and who can sympathize uh, with what they have gone through. So even if it's not exactly their story, the sentiment and the heart is still there. So I think the value in fiction is it can provide a, a human face, a human voice to what is often just like a headline or statistic or uh, 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 just a photograph of a lot of faces, but give us some a person, even if it's a fictional person, to go through um, their experience and, and give us a chance to relate to this, at least one individual, as a way of um, establishing that empathy. Definitely. Definitely. Yes.
Now, I understand that uh, with this book, as well as uh, the other two we talked about, The Only Road Home and The Crossroads, that you worked with your mother on uh, uh, creating the uh, Spanish translation for, for all of these books. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process and both the challenges and joys of translating your own work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So when I was initially asked to translate The Only Road, I went through uh, a short panic. It's like, oh, I can't do that. My Spanish is not good enough. And I, but at the same time, I was excited about the idea because I have read many books in Spanish and sometimes they feel very stilted and very, uh, academic Spanish instead of colloquial Spanish. So while I was scared, I was very enthusiastic and I mentioned it to my mom and my mom's like, Niña, claro que sí, lo tenemos que hacer, which basically means, you know, we have to do this, of course. So uh, we decided to, to do it. And uh, my mom is very good at the grammar side of Spanish and, um, you know, doing doing the book justice as a translation. However, she is not a writer. So initially when I was uh, working with her and I would read something that I had translated or that she had translated in the English, I had written something along the lines of, he walked away with a swagger to his step as he brought the phone to his ear. And then my mom translates that to se fue, which just means he left. And I'm like, mommy, you can't do this to me. Uh, because a story is not just finding out what happens. It's finding out how it happens. It's how it's written, how it's described that makes a story good. And she's like, I it sounds like you are talking that your book has a heart. And I'm like, see, mommy, it has a heart and you have just yanked it out and thrown it away. So <laughs> after that, um, you know, she's, she's learned that she can't be paraphrasing what I say, that she actually does have to translate, you know, the, the sentiment, the meaning, because as any translator knows, you don't translate the words, you translate the meaning because there's a lot of words that are either used colloquially or they are used to signify something that won't create the same image when, uh, if you were to translate it literally. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fun process. Um, we work together and, um, I do a bit, she does a bit, we, we read each other's work. And then if I have questions, for example, does this word have an accent or not, then, you know, we may discuss it or look it up and decide, okay, yes, in this case, it does have an accent or it doesn't. But yeah, it's, it's been working really well. And the people who have read the Spanish versions have really enjoyed it. So that's fantastic. I'm curious because um, uh, there's a certain art to translation, and um, uh, even though it's it's telling the same story and the same characters, the same emotional underpinnings, uh, have you found that there is a slight difference in how the novel reads in Spanish as opposed to English, just because 
of those kinds of shifts or different sort of colloquialisms, as you say, or, or, or is it pretty well, you know, the same novel just, in, or is there, I'm, I'm just curious, is there a slight or do you, is a difference in just uh, in the, in the act of translation and the sort of feeling of the novel? Um, I would say that there is a slight difference, uh, but at the same time, because I consider myself the author of both, both versions it's also very hard for me to to really say. So I think it would be a matter that, um, I mean, I would love to get somebody's professional opinion. So somebody who is not so close and not so invested in the novel to read both versions and actually say, yeah, uh, they, they are, you know, the sentiments are pretty much the same. Or no, it's a, there's actually there actually is a, a different tone between the two novels. So yeah, I mean, I would say there's a there's a slight difference, but as the author, I'm just too close to be actually able to see those differences. Now I understand as well as as writing these books that you also also offer a number of different school presentations. Can you just talk a bit a little bit about what those presentations are and what a person might experience going into one of your presentations? Yeah, so my standard presentation talks about the the books, how they came to be, uh, tying it a little bit with my personal background. I am the daughter of Cuban refugees, and I grew up hearing stories from my parents on what it was like for them to leave their country, their family, their home. I go into a little details on the research involved and how you need to always double check your sources because the internet, while it's great, it can also lead you astray and tell you some things that are, that are not uh, factual. So that is, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so that is my, my general school presentation. However, I always invite uh, librarians, educators, teachers to say that I'm happy to cater my presentation to any kind of specific needs that they may have. And then I also offer creative writing presentations. So if we are doing a creative writing workshop, I will often give um, give the students some examples of what uh, what we're discussing. So for instance, if we're discussing revision, I will give them some examples that can be revised. If we're discussing character development, I'm gonna give them some examples of what I'm looking for in a good character development. And then of course, always give them plenty of time so that they can work on some things, which if you only have, 45 minutes or an hour with a group of kids, it's a lot to cover, you know, to talk about the creative writing aspect and then still give them time to write what you have been presenting. Um, I've also had some teachers say, well, I really want you to focus on the research. And, you know, that's where I was going on. And in that case, I, I will bring up things that I have found online because of course the internet is always the truth. And then I challenge the kids to say, okay, tell me which of these facts is actually true. And I present them with, 
you know, according to the internet, these are all true, but which ones do you truly believe are true? So, yeah, I mean, I can definitely work to the different needs of, of a teacher, of a librarian, of the students. I also do uh, presentations in Spanish and, um, you know, any, any of the presentations that I, that I do in English, I can do in Spanish as well. So yeah, it's pretty much, a. Uh, Here's here's what I generally do, but if you want to propose something out of the box, that's totally fine too. I had one school that um, they wrote little character sketches of my characters, and I had to guess who those characters were. Oh, <laughs> which was which was kind of fun, um, you know, putting the author on the spot there. Uh, but at the same time, it was. It was interesting to read their writing and their interpretations of of my characters. How did, how, did, how did that go, by the way? I think I got all of them correct except one, and that was only because the example, the writing example, could have applied to a few different characters. So, yeah, but yeah, it, it was fun. And hey, I'm totally up for anything out of the box, and it makes makes my job and my life more interesting. And I know the kids enjoy it. So yeah, why not? As well as working with kids on their uh, uh, writing skills and, and research skills, you also offer writing coaching tips to other authors. Can you talk a little bit about what that yes. process is? So uh, first of all, it's for authors who are working on a children's book, either middle grade or young adult. Um, I'm not particularly interested in in helping coaching somebody who's writing like a memoir just because I don't I don't read many memoirs I don't write in that style so I don't feel like I could you know comfortably give uh, good feedback so what we do is they usually give me their whole manuscript or short story and Often, often the, the writer themselves will have some particular questions like, I don't know if this flows or I don't know if this makes sense or I just need you to look at it and tell me if it's interesting. Uh, and so then we'll start and we'll, we'll work on it that way. Usually uh, people have very good ideas and then they're not executed completely throughout the manuscript. So I may offer suggestions like, hey, you know, this is this is a part where you're just telling us what's happening and you're not showing us the details. You're not making it um, interesting or sympathetic to the reader. Uh, you're just saying, this is what happens, this is what happens, this is what happens without any of, of this richness that makes a good story interesting and captivating. So we might uh, discuss something like that. I may make comments on their dialogue. If the dialogue feels a bit stilted or repetitive, uh, whatever the case may be, I have to say that I am not huge person on copy editing. I will point out a misspelled word if it, if it comes across but I'm not looking at that and I'm not necessarily looking at the, the format or 
the structure of, you know, whether they're indented paragraphs or not. I mean, I may point it out and say, hey, you know, traditionally you are supposed to indent at the start of the paragraph, but I'm not going to go over a fine tooth comb and say, oh, you know, you you need to fix this comma. You need to uh, put this in um, in italics because uh, for me, that's something that can always happen later on. And it's more important to have the story, the characters, the setting, the, um, that kind of internal structure instead of the visual structure, I find more important. Uh, there, I realized that uh, we were talking about Santiago's Road Home. Uh, I forgot to ask, was there a part of the book that you wanted to share with us? Uh, yes, I will share with you the the prologue of the book. So uh, very much at the beginning. So prologue. Somewhere, neither here nor there. The bed creaks under Santiago's shivering body. Maybe it's not a bed but a coffin. Had he thought about it, he would have preferred to go a different way, saving lost invisible unicorns or escaping this prison to be free. But he'd never thought of death that way before, especially not of dying here like this, lost and alone. At least now he doesn't have to fight, doesn't have to try so hard. People who die are at peace. He could use some peace. He hears voices, but it's unclear if they're real or remembered. What is real anyway? He can't hold on anymore. As sure as the blinding light, death's ways closer. Santiago knows it's come for him. He takes a deep breath, embracing the white light. Soon it'll all be over, and I am not afraid. They say a person's life flashes by before dying, but it's not his whole life, just the events that led to this the important ones, and the ones Santiago would rather forget. That is quite an opening. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I I definitely uh, am looking forward to reading it. I think I want to read The Crossroads, even though I realize they're a different uh, set of characters, but I feel like I I need to uh, continue on with the the novel I'd read before before I get to that. But I will get to that. Uh, So thank thank you very much for sharing that. Of course, of course. Thank you. Uh, now, the book you picked as one of your own personal favorite uh, books for young readers is The Girl with the Silver Eyes by Willow Davis Roberts. I believe it's pronounced Willow anyway. Uh, and this book was published originally in 1980. Uh, for readers who are unfamiliar with this book, and I have to admit I'd never heard of this book be, uh, before you picked it out, but I enjoyed it very much. Uh, for other readers who, who may not have heard of this book or had a chance to read it yet, can you talk a little bit of what it's about? Yeah, it's about a girl who discovers that she has telekinesis, which is the ability to move objects uh, just by thinking of them. So it starts out with her feeling very um, alone, and she's always been told that she's a strange child, but at the same time, you know, it's normal for her to be able to move things Uh by not touching them and it puts her in awkward situations because a lot of people around her including her own mother does not understand um her and doesn't really understand her peculiarities as they say and when did you first come across this book and read it i must have been around 
9 or 10. I was a reluctant reader when I was younger. I actually struggled very much to read and I it's something that I have found out later in life that it that a lot of children will see the word but not necessarily put the whole picture together in their mind. So yeah, for the longest time it was difficult for me to read and I I wasn't able to understand what I was reading. So this was definitely one of the earlier books that I read that I actually was like, hey, I understand what's happening. I get it. And this is so cool. So yeah, I mean, for me, it it represented a lot of different things. For one thing, Katie, the protagonist, is was like the coolest person I had ever met because who wouldn't want to be able to move things uh, just by, by thinking about them. But at the same time, and I realize this now as an adult, that it was also very reassuring to read about someone who was considered different, who other people didn't understand. And I mean, full disclosure, no, I do not have telekinesis, but I did always feel you know, a little socially awkward, a little different from other kids. So to have this protagonist who was also different from other kids, it was, yeah, it was very reassuring. And it certainly created a, a world that I, that I idolized, that I admired. But at the same time, I, I felt like I could be a part of her world. Even even without my you know my ability to be telekinetic. <laughs> yeah, you, you say you know it's these abilities, both her telekinesis and these uh, the silver eyes that uh, Katie has that sets her apart. But it's it's kind of even more than that, which make makes her an interesting character to read about. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Katie as a person. You know, she's certainly got these these interesting qualities, but she's also just an interesting person in herself, uh, even apart from mm-hmm. the, the silver eyes and the telekinesis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, she also likes to read a lot, which I think helped me become a better reader because it was it was like the cool factor. It's like, ooh, Katie likes to read a lot. And I want to be cool like Katie, so I'm going to read a lot as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, she's she's a little introverted, and um, she also is a fighter in the sense that she believes in in being kind to people, and she loves animals. So yeah, these are all factors that I myself. Um, admire and and relate to. And the world seems to divide it into people that are either afraid of her, like Mr. Pollard, her neighbor, and even to a certain extent, her mm-hmm. grandmother and mother. You know, mostly adults uh, and people who kind of accept for accept her for who he is. Uh, mostly kids, but also like your neighbor, Mrs. M. Uh, and I don't know what that says about people in her life or how people in general handle the unknown and unfamiliar. I definitely think it's a bit of both. And I remember thinking, well, why would anyone be scared of her? This is the coolest thing ever. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it is true that people are scared 
of the unknown. And that is so true with, with every, everything that, you know, that we have around ourselves, that if something is unfamiliar, there's not enough information, then yes, people tend to be scared. They don't know how to react. Um, I mean, we've seen it so much with race, uh, with gender identity or, or sexuality. Um, and I mean, going back to, to my books with immigrations and some people believing that immigrants are, you know, what is, what was the infamous quote are all rapists and criminals. I mean, how untrue is that? But it's, it's based on ignorance. It's based on lack of information or one person's opinion. So, uh, yeah, I think that is very much the case with Katie and her world that, you know, her mother, her mother doesn't actually know about her telekinetic abilities. She just knows that she's a strange child and never really opened up to find out you know, hey, talk to me, what's going on? Because uh, the mother was dealing with her own things, such as a divorce and uh, lack of money. So it's a very, I think it's a very realistic story in the sense of a lot of parents not having time to actually get to know and to understand their child. So as much as they may love their child, yeah, they just haven't had the opportunity to open up and really see what's going on with them. Well, it, it struck me, too, that in many ways this is a book about uh, you know, children of of divorce. So really any time where it, a, a child feels somewhat unmoored from her family and kind of passed around and feels kind of just generally unwanted. So it's almost as much a book right. about that sort of circumstance as um, the, the uh, more um, unusual aspects. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, something that I noticed with uh, with Willow Davis Robertson, I have read most of the things that she wrote, um, definitely sparked by this book here, because after I loved this book so much, I did what most children do. It's like you want to read everything else the person has written. Uh, but yeah, she often, she often has uh, topics of, either estranged parents or divorced parents, parents who are either neglectful or too busy. So yeah, it seems to be an interesting theme that, uh, that she pursued in a lot of her books. But at the same time, it's, it's such a universal theme. And it's a theme that will continue being uh, popular. Not well, I guess popular is not the right word, but will be continue. It, it's a it's an ongoing theme. I mean, it's it's not a theme that will unfortunately ever change. So yes, it, you said that this book was written in the eighties, but I think at the same time it still holds quite a lot of topical relevance because there are still quite a lot of children who, you know, for whatever reason, are a bit estranged from their parents. And it, it, what I also found kind of unusual about the novel, even though it deals with these paranormal phenomenon, uh, in many ways, uh, I was struck with how much of it, this is a very realistic book. Uh, you know, in other words, she, she does yes. have these powers, but she uses it in ways that I would expect 
a kid that age would use them. Uh, you know, the first time we see her, she <laughs> yes. just uses it just to, just to bug this neighbor who's who's really mean to her. And and it's not like she's battling supervillains or it's these extreme cases. It's it's a sort of thing I would expect if somebody had these powers and they were that age, that's what they would do. So in some ways, it's a very a, a, a realistic a book, which is kind of strange to say for something that deals with telekinesis. Yes, and I also remember. Once I was older and I knew more about books, I was very proud and impressed that the at least the copy that I have is labeled as fiction. And I learned that fiction means that this could happen to you and your friends or whatever. It didn't say anything about uh, fantasy or science fiction. So, so yeah, like for me, it just added to the, this could be real, this could be possible, and this is how uh, a person really would handle these situations. There have also been accounts of people who are pregnant taking a dangerous drugs, and then their child is often born with disabilities. So, you know, just the the fact that, hey, this actually could possibly happen, I thought was very, very thrilling. And it wasn't a book with 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 such extreme magic or whatever that you're like, yeah, you know, that is total fantasy or whatever. It It really felt like it could happen and it was very realistic as a result. And the turning point for her is when she really finds out uh, that there are others like her, that she's not alone. And when she's meet them all day of varying yes. degrees and types of powers, they can make bigger things happen. And I'm wondering for for kids who might be going through all sorts of different circumstances, like you said, you sort of related to her as well. If that's a, a that even more, even somewhat the, the idea of having powers is a kind of wish fulfillment, that's kind of neat. But the idea that there's other ones out there like me and that I'm not alone, if that's, especially yes. for kids reading this book, if that's a comforting thought. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's strength in numbers, but yes, it's nice to know that you're not the only one who has these thoughts or these feelings. I mean, that's that's something that even even a person who prides themselves in being different and being unusual, there's still something within human nature that kind of wants to know, yeah, I'm not alone. I am not I'm not completely weird for thinking the way I do or for doing things the way I do. So, yeah, it does definitely offer that um, that realization and also that celebration that it is okay to be different and it is good to be proud of who you are, whoever that person may be. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the ending of the book, and I don't want to do actually spoilers for this, but I just want to – the fact that there, there's a certain – ambiguity in the ending on as as far as i know yes. there's no sequel to the book and and so and there's an uncertainty about what happens next and i wonder did you ever uh, either reading or rereading the book think about what might happen to next if you had a chance to read or even write the book that follows or am i is that just missing the point that whatever happens that katie's gonna be fine i i have to i'm glad you brought this up because i definitely have always felt disappointed with the ending and i always wanted to know what was going to happen and you're you're correct in thinking that there is no sequel at least no no sequel that i have heard of either and i did try to read everything i could get my hands of 
I mean, at the same time, I do understand the purpose of having an ending like that because in life you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know, you know, what is going to end up being the right choice or the wrong choice. So yes, I, I was disappointed in the ending because I wanted to know more and I wanted to stay with these characters because, you know, all of a sudden there's four of them and they're so cool. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I understand, I understand the rationale of keeping it ambiguous and keeping it open-ended. I didn't, I did not ever like write my own story to decide how, how they were ending, but I'm sure I imagine many different things. Uh, and you know, who would have budding romances? I'm sure I thought about that, but I, I can't really remember if, uh, you know, what I actually <laughs> concluded. <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there somewhere has written a, a sequel to it, whether they're keeping to their, themselves, keeping it to themselves or not. I don't know, but I'm sure somebody's probably either thought about or actually written that down at some point. But um, I don't know if they've ever shared that. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to, to get on the on the fan pages and see if there's anything out there. <laughs> well, Alexandra, uh, thank you so much for taking the time both to talk to me about... Uh, your own books, and again, I'm looking forward to reading uh, both uh, the Crossroads and uh, and Santiago's Road Home. And thank you for t- taking the time. In both Spanish, to- right? <laughs> uh, that I'll I'll have to work a lot harder on this. I do not know Spanish, but uh, I. <laughs> It's one of those things, actually, I, I say, you know, that's something I should do. So maybe this is my motivation for doing that. Uh, and, and <laughs> it's okay. I'll let you read it in English, I suppose. <laughs> and I want to thank you, too, as well, for uh, choosing. Because again, I, I'd actually never heard of this book. So it's a, a treat. It's always a treat when I, I get introduced to a book that I not only haven't read, but I'm not familiar with. Uh, so thank you for both introducing me to this book and uh, taking the time to talk to me about it today. Of course, of course. And thank you for inviting me to be on your show and uh, be able to talk about books. I mean, what better way to spend life than to talk about books? You can find Alexandra's website at alexandra-diaz.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.